<laughs> so this forceps thing, did you know that was going to be the process? Was my sister born the same way where they kind of let you, I guess you labor a little bit. And then when they see the they, babies coming, they knock you out and yeah, use the forceps. I, yeah. Cause you'd be, you know, you're saying, Oh, the pain is there. And, but you have to dilate to a certain amount before they're going to do anything. Uh, with my, your sister, they did the episiotomy. They, they clipped me. Before you even pushed? I didn't push. How did she get out, Ma? You don't know either. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Birthright, a podcast about joy and healing in Black birth. My name is Kimberly Sales Allers, and I am daughter of Alma, granddaughter of Mary Jane, great-granddaughter of Emily, and today I explore my own matrilineal line of birth experiences with a very special guest, my mother. Hello, my name is Alma Seals. I'm the mother of three. And this is my birthright story. So let's go back to, I'm the middle child. So mm-hmm. you, I was not your first pregnancy, but let's go back to when you found out you were pregnant with me. Tell me what that was like for you. Well, I had the fortune, good fortune. I was going to say misfortune because the first three months of my pregnancies with each one, uh, I was always very, very sick. Mm. I couldn't keep any food down. I couldn't stand certain smells Mm. or I would throw up. So the first three months, that's the way I was. But the six months after that, I was fine. I could carry on my life as usual. Tell us what pregnancy care looked like. What did your doctor do? You know, how many times did you go visit? Do you remember those types of details? What what, what was their advice to pregnant women at that time? Well, I had a private doctor because... um, I was very scary, and um, I used the same doctor that I used for your sister before you, and uh, so I felt a little more relaxed. And um, but it's a frightening experience. Uh, you had a beautiful one because you have a life inside of you, and um, so you carry on life as usual, and you cherish the fact that, especially when the baby starts to move. And you can feel the little elbow, and you can start identifying the body parts as they move about. It's very exciting. We were planning. In fact, it had been some years before we even got the first child. And um, that was very difficult. Uh, We wanted to wait three years, and then when we decided to start our family, uh, nothing was happening. Mm. And so it was of great concern because your father loved children. But there was a, uh, one doctor that we went to that um, knew my parents. And so he said, sometimes uh, it's just uh, that their training is uh, working on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they didn't find anything wrong. And, um, but Dr. Davis did know what was wrong. What did he say? He said, I had a cyst on my ovary. Oh. Yeah. And I said, how do you know? And he gave me some strange answer which seemed like it was out of, of left field. Mm. And I didn't believe him, so I didn't do anything. And then eventually, he was right. 
because they took the cyst off my ovary in 67, 1967. How did it feel for you to have those nine years when you wanted to have a child and you couldn't? It was frustrating sometimes um, because you wonder what's wrong. And we looked at the family line. Everybody had children. And, and Aretha is always very encouraging. She says, you're going to have children. Mm-hmm. And um, But I didn't uh, dwell on it because that wasn't helping. And so we just kept ourselves busy. And, and so when we finally, when I finally started feeling sick, and I told Daddy that I was feeling sick. Um, we looked at each other, and we were afraid to say anything. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, one day at work, as I said, I got sick, and I went into the restroom there, and Sid finally said, you know, you need to go home. And I, she called a cab, and I, I went home. But... Um, and that's when I was in bed for the two weeks. And then I went to one doctor, and then two weeks later, I went to the other one. But we would look at each other, but we would not say a word mm. to anybody because we felt that if we said something, it wouldn't happen. Yeah, it would be a false alarm. So, yeah, there's a lot of suspense there. Yeah. So that's why when I speak of child rearing or childbirth, it's, it's special. It's special. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a beautiful story, Mommy. Thank you so much. So I wanted to actually go back again. When you found out that you were pregnant again, were you, you know, happy? Were you planning? Or was I unexpected? Take me back to finding out that you were actually pregnant. As Trina got to be about two and a half, going on three, we um, decided that she needed some company. And so we tried to have another trial. And that process took a while. So um, finally, I became pregnant, so we were both very excited. Um, that's one thing we felt about all, all of the three of you. And um, so, and just as soon as before I'm diagnosed, I'm getting the morning sickness. So that was par for the course. So with each one, I did that. But we were very careful because we didn't want to get too excited and be wrong. Then we'd be disappointed. So we always called the doctor and we had an appointment to go in and see him. So yes. which kind of birth did you want? Did you want a birth with no pain medications and all natural? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Put me out. <laughs> but you were different. You... um I think sometimes we learn from a previous pregnancy. Had you taken a childbirth class to think about breathing techniques? No. Did that exist? No. It it may have. It didn't exist for me. Okay. (laughs) And the doctor never suggested anything. And so um, when I started feeling certain things, like with you, I started feeling as if there was lead in my stomach. And I carried very low because people would look at me and say, oh, it's a boy. It's a boy. They said that for the first one, they said that for the second one, the third one, they couldn't see. (laughs) So, um, but your symptoms, they vary. So the symptoms that I had for for the first one, I didn't have for you. And uh, because for my first one, the water broke at home. So when I called the doctor, he said to go to the hospital. But all I did was go there laughing and... uh, 
waiting till the next day to give birth. And so I said, I'm not going to do that this time. So I stayed at the house and I just felt like somebody had put something lead in my stomach. I felt very, very heavy. So my sister called a check on me, Aunt Rita, Mm -hmm. and she said, well, you're going to have that baby uh, tonight. She said, those are symptoms. And so uh, there was something else I don't remember that was unusual that I hadn't had before with Katrina. So uh, I stayed there and I pushed it to the very limit because I almost couldn't get down the stairs. We were one flight up in our apartment. So um, daddy took me to the hospital Mm -hmm. and um, they took me right away. And you were born within hours. I mean, they probably had time to prep me. And uh, you were born within at least three hours after I got there. So how was I born? Um, Well, they had to use the forceps. (laughs) So this forceps (laughs) thing, did you know that was going to be the process? Was my sister born the same way where they kind of let you, I guess you labor a little bit. And then when they see the babies coming, they knock you out and use the forceps. Yeah, because you'd be, you know, you're saying, oh, the pain is there. And but you have to dilate to a certain amount before they're going to do anything. Uh with my your sister, they did the episiotomy. They they clipped me. Before you even pushed? I didn't push. How did she get out, Ma? You don't I know either. Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> my goodness gracious. <laughs> I can't deal with pain. <laughs> That's why I wanted a doctor. What do you think I paid him for? <laughs> I mean, the clipping is pain. I didn't feel it. So Because that one, I do remember, I had started to stand up in the bed. And um, and the doctor said, uh, okay, the head is there. He says, let's take her in. And so they took me into the uh, room. And again, I just made sure the Dr. Wolf was there and... And where was daddy? Was this a time when men were allowed in the living room with you? No, they were not. Okay. So you were by yourself. Yeah. yeah that's he tough. Was, he wasn't allowed in the room where I was a pre-labor mm-hmm. um, or pre-delivery, I know what they call it. And it was a very small hospital uh, that you both were born in. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so you got, you know, personalized attention. And, and so you were out. I was out. And then when I woke up, I was in my bed. And it was next morning, and um, uh, within next morning, yes, because we went in the evening, and I told you it was about three hours before um, that you came, but it was very quick. So after that, I think you were born about seven. I think I was born six something in the morning. Just move forward to the mic, mommy. Okay. So, so you didn't see me. I I didn't see you. No. Who did? I don't know. <laughs> I might. <laughs> I am such a chicken. <laughs> when it comes to pain, I become. <laughs> so, so you, nobody was worried about checking me, make sure I had all my fingers and toes. But you, daddy was there. But you don't even know if daddy and, went to check me. Right. And you know what? I might have. <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes you're droggy and you don't remember. But when I, I evidently didn't because when I got you uh, in the morning, um, 
I did unwrap you. Yes. So when you finally saw me, did you check me then? Yes, I did. Thank you. What about skin to skin? That's a big yes. thing now. They put, well, they put see, the baby on the you. The knowledge that you have about babies now wasn't necessarily the knowledge of yesteryear. Mm-hmm. But out of love, you, you actually put the child on you. And um, yes, and you hold them tight. Was I crying then? No. <laughs> <laughs> Bottom line, I was a forceps baby. A product of the birthing practice at the time. My name is Neil Shaw. I'm an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Harvard Medical School. Forceps uh, really changed childbirth all over the world, and the purpose was to save lives. Um, Until relatively recently, the risks of giving birth and procreation were really severe. Um, Almost everybody until the 20th century knew somebody who died of a complicated pregnancy. Um, Almost everybody knew somebody whose baby was born dead. And um, it wasn't just that uh, people face the prospect of birth and death at the same time, um, but, you know, in the absence of contraception, they did so like over and over again. And um, I read a statistic in preparing the article that uh, until the early 20th century, the probability of dying in childbirth was similar to the probability of a woman dying uh, of breast cancer or a heart attack today. It was that common. So, you know, in 1971, when you were born, or even a few years prior, when your sister was born, Um, things like twilight sleep were common and everybody thought that's just how you did it. Like you're put to sleep and then, um, the baby comes out with forceps. And, you know, the analogy today is that one in three babies are born with a major surgery, a C-section, and one in 10 of their babies goes to the NICU. And we've kind of like normalized that. That's a valid point, Dr. Shaw, but it also raises the question of who began to normalize that. I'm Dr. Deirdre Cooper Owens. I am the Linda and Charles Wilson Professor in the History of Medicine and the Director of the Humanities and Medicine Program at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I am the author of Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology, which was published in 2017. Yeah, that's a really great question because it brings up the history of when what we used to call midwifery um, changed. And all of a sudden, midwifery that was governed and managed by women starts to become controlled and managed by men. And pregnancy and birth start to be seen as not just biological functions, like that hasn't changed. But what happens is when men are being called in, all of a sudden they're seeing pregnancy and birth as something that's um, traumatic, that's something that is um, a sign of distress, because of course they're going to be called in for emergency situations. And the intervention that happens is the use of tools, right? So you have all kinds of tools from blades to forceps that really gains traction in the 19th century or the 1800s as gynecology and obstetrics is really being um, formalized as a quote-unquote formal medical branch uh, for both of them. And you start to see in the antebellum era, especially a lot of, you know, these kind of pioneering discoveries, but they almost always involve the use of, of tools or surgeries. So all of these kinds of things start to happen with male intervention.
Did you know that racism and bias in care has been directly linked to the Black maternal and infant mortality crisis? Black and brown women and birthing people need to birth with Earth. Earth is in the word birth, but we dropped the B for bias, is a new Yelp-like review and rating app for Black and other birthing people of color to leave and find reviews of OBGYNs, birthing hospitals, and pediatricians. Join the movement to use our collective experiences to inform and protect each other and to bring transparency and accountability to the medical system. Reclaim your birthright to birth without bias. Earth is available now in the Google Play and Apple App Stores. Download today. Search reviews for yourself. Leave a review to help others. Visit earthapp.com to learn more and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Earth App. Everything about the medical experience changes even in terms of the architecture of hospitals. So even the psychology of going into a place that looks like a mall, that literally looks like a mall, right? Where you have gift shops now and all of those kinds of things. The psychology, even for the birthing person is, oh, you know, this, this is almost like going, you know, going to the Galleria. Everything becomes commercialized and, and corporatized by the, the, especially the, the seventies and the eighties. It's interesting that there have been waves of what is in, in terms of birthing practices, but the commercialization and the business side of birthing seems to have remained a constant. Once it shifted, it never went back. So when you look at the world of pregnancy and childbirth now, you know, now going on 50 years since I was born, almost, <laughs> what if, if you could ever do anything differently? Is there anything you're like, you know what, maybe I would try that now or... That's interesting. I used to see people doing different things. Is there anything that you see going on in the pregnancy and birth world now that you're like, oh, I wish I had that when that was available to me when I gave birth? Mm. No, because the doctor that I chose, uh, I used the same doctor. Mm -hmm. And the only one that had a different doctor was Jeffrey uh, and special circumstances there. But he was a gem. Mm. So I was blessed. I really felt that I was blessed on both ends because I had a support from home and I had the support of the doctor. So that, that gave me a lot of comfort. You know, there's sort of this tension between comfort, like what I think your mom may have wanted, and control. And in childbirth, you can't have both as absolutes. You can't have complete control you can't have complete comfort. There's some kind of balance between the two. But I think most people, they're not expecting either. They just want to be able to kind of cede control on their own terms rather than have it taken away from them. I appreciate that perspective, Dr. Shaw. And what I love about my mother's story is that she was clear about the birth that she wanted to have, even though it involved an unnecessary medical intervention. In fact, there have been many times in history when women themselves have contributed to the medicalization of birth with their own personal desires and even with feminist initiatives. Much of it, much like my mom's experience, was centered on the desire to not have pain in childbirth. I touch on this in my book, The Big Letdown, uh, on page 33, because it's an interesting history. Here's what I wrote. 
As the women's rights movement picked up steam in 1913, two wealthy American women took up the cause of urging other women around the country to battle for their right to painless childbirth in the form of twilight sleep, a way of giving birth in a heavily sedated state that had been developed in Germany. A woman simply woke to a baby with no memory of the labor of birth. Two female reporters from McClure's magazine in New York who had been previously denied interviews by German doctors hatched an undercover plan to send a pregnant friend to Germany to have a twilight sleep birth. The women starch feminists planned to make Americans aware of this quote-unquote miracle discovery. The three women decided to liberate American women through twilight sleep, urging them to rise up against the oppression of medical men. The 1914 article sparked a call to action among feminists, making the right to a painless birth a key women's rights issue. Feminists saw maternal health care as a significant area that needed improvements. The only problem was that feminists focused on the pain and discomfort of the labor of childbirth. In their minds, the pain was the problem, and freeing women from pain meant liberation from men. Of course, this movement was led by white feminists. The folk who tended to be put into twilight sleep tended to be upper middle class to very elite or wealthy white ladies, right? That's the term that was used to describe them. Because doctors were so afraid that their kind of nervousness, um, the, their, their sensibilities around pain would be so great that they couldn't take it. So by the end of the 19th century, into the 20th century, you start to have um, more of a reliance on putting women into um, twilight twilight sleep. And I'm using very historical terms, so this is why I'm not saying birthing people yet, because that hadn't been a part of the, the lexicon. You start to see that happening by the, the early 70s, the late 60s, early 70s, and I think we share that um, in common, right, you start to have, you know, there, so there are kind of like two schools. My mother was of the, I want to have, you know, go to Lamaze class and I want to have a natural childbirth. And so she was really resistant to being put under. But I do know forceps were used. So she she had the epidural. She couldn't really feel anything, but she was so conscious. Um, by the 1970s and 80s, that's when you start to have the real heavy reliance on sedation. Right. And it kind of cuts across, um, you know, the, the class dynamics and the race dynamics. So there's no longer this sense that, oh, you know, childbirth is going to be easier for this group because there's big business also in using medication, in sedating people, in having surgeries in all of those kinds of things. And so it literally is this business um, around birth that starts to predominate in the 70s and the 80s. Learning the history matters. The historical context of birthing matters, and the personal and matrilineal history matters. Dr. Cooper Owens has a powerful example. So I learned about uh, a French-born gynecological surgeon named Francois-Marie Provost. And I, I mentioned him in the book, but there, there just wasn't a lot of information. Harriet Washington, the author of Medical Apartheid, wrote a, wrote a bit about him. Once again, doesn't have a whole lot of information. And so as I started to give a lot more public talks about the legacy of medical racism, 
I needed something that was really concrete, right? I wanted to show people that the legacy of medical racism is about a structural or a systemic issue. And it's never about just one person. Um, and so I wanted to, to kind of expand the conversation be, beyond James Marion Sims. And so as I started to read more about Provoche, who is known as the father of the C-section, Provoche was born in France. He goes to med school in France in the late 18th century, so in the 1780s, 90s. So in 1799, once he gets his medical license, he moves to to Haiti, France's most profitable colony, as we know, in the very late uh, 18th century, at the turn of the 19th century, Haiti is still a slave-holding island, right? So there, there are enslaved people there. Dr. Provost begins experimental surgeries on enslaved Haitian women trying to perfect the C-section. He leaves a year later. He goes to another former French colony, but this time a part of the United States, Louisiana. He settles in a little town called Donaldsonville, right outside of Baton Rouge. And in the 1830s, he is noted as the second American to once again, perfect the C-section on enslaved women in Louisiana. The really interesting thing about this that a lot of folk don't necessarily put the pieces of the puzzle together, Dr. Provost's work, right, this kind of experimental surgical work trying to perfect the C-section on these enslaved women had a lasting impact in the state of, of Louisiana. So literally from the 1830s until the contemporary moment, Louisiana had been for quite some time, from slavery to freedom, the state that had the highest number of C-sections performed on Black women. So those numbers have sometimes dipped from, you know, number one to maybe number three. But it's almost always been since the 1830s until the 21st century, which is today, Louisiana has been one of the top states in the nation that continues to rely heavily on the use of the C-section with Black women and Black birthing people. Wow, such a powerful story about history that is still impacting birth outcomes in Louisiana today, where Black women are four times more likely than white women to die while pregnant or within 42 days of childbirth from complications related to C-sections, including blood loss, cardiomyopathy, and heart disease. It's a powerful legacy that may take generations of intentional work to undo and correct. On a more personal historical level, my mother has never had a birth without medical intervention. My sister has had three C-sections. I have had two. Perhaps the birthing history really matters in so many other ways. Dr. Cooper Owens, have things improved? Please tell us things have improved. I often tell this story. Another um, historian of slavery and, and hist- you know, historian of medicine, Charlotte Fett, who wrote a really great book called Working Cures um, in the early 2000s. But we decided we're going to co-author this piece for uh, the leading journal for public uh, health folk. So the American Journal of Public Health. And it's basically just a kind of commentary on the status of the Black maternal health crisis, and kind of how do we get here? Where were we? And so we put in something that for us is just quite simple, that 
um, the, you know, the kind of Black maternal health crisis that we're in now in the 21st century, the stats kind of rival those of the 19th century during the height of slavery. And I remember one of the reviewers is just like, this cannot be true. You know, you must cite, where's your evidence? Oh, oh, don't worry. We have a couple of pages. We can give you evidence. Here are the footnotes, right? And you want to say so badly that at the, you know, with the demise of slavery becoming illegal, um, chattel slavery is not a thing anymore, that somehow Black birth rates just increase and there are less complications. And that simply is not the case. And in fact, you've had since the 1980s, you have had public health folk, even in the Reagan administration, and this is the thing that always blows my mind, even during the Reagan administration in 1986, an office of minority health was created literally because black birth outcomes were so poor. And, you know, in the 1990s, David Satcher, as a, a black uh, surgeon general, was like, hey, there's all this medical racism. Let's try and solve this thing. And it doesn't happen until April 2021, where you finally have the CDC saying, you know, um, medical racism, like racism is a public health crisis. And maybe we need to look at this. And so the numbers have just remained dismal and um, infuriating because as we know, this is one of the wealthiest nations. And for whatever reason, the only thing that tends to save Black women and Black birthing people's lives are when they have providers who look like them at every level. So for Black women, our history is still our present. But I'm hopeful that we are at a critical juncture for a turning point. What do you think, Dr. Shaw? Yeah, I think what we're hoping for is that people have expectations that are honored around childbirth that are about more than just emerging from the process unscathed without injury. Like people want support, they want dignity, they want empowerment. And I know that's what your podcast is about. And I don't see any reason why they shouldn't be able to get that. Me neither. I close every episode by asking, what is our birthright? Dr. Cooper Owens, what do you think? Our birthright is to have um, the best quality of life and care that we can in whatever ways we define it. There are some things that for me are universal. I think we should have universal, equitable health care so that people live without complications that are unnecessary, that could have been prevented. But I also want us to live in joy. So whether it is naming your child something that is unique or joyous or connects you to a, a familial past. I want um, our families to continue to be tools of community uplift, um, models of excellence. And I don't mean that in a kind of politics of respectability way, but models of excellence where kinship um, and community is important. And to my wonderful mother, what is our birthright? I think it should be a, a special, I was going to say glorious experience, uh, simply because you have the privilege of bringing a life into the world. As Alice Walker said, while in search of my mother's garden, I found my own. Knowing our birthing history collectively as Black women and individually is an important dialogue for us to have with our mothers. And it can also unlock keys to who we are as people. 
For example, knowing that I came into the world with tools and advice, and now I actually create multimedia and technology tools to dismantle the same systems, feels like my birthright. Feels like I have found the roots of my creativity and my purpose. And for that knowledge, I am grateful. Thank you to my wonderful mother, Alma Seals, for sharing my birth story with me and all of you today. Just so you know, not only did my mother birth three children, but she was with me for the birth of my daughter, Kayla, and was the first person to hold my baby when I couldn't. And if you don't know anything about my personal story about how I became a mother, long story short, it was certainly unplanned. But one of the things that I often say and write about is that in all the uncertainty of being pregnant, being unwed, with all the wrong timing. The one thing that I knew was that I could be a good mother because I had a good mother. My mother was a source of comfort to me. And so I thank my mom for giving me and my siblings a wonderful childhood of game nights, family dinners, parties, Scooby-Doo cakes, roller skating, all of it. I love you, mom. If you want to hear way too much about what I was like as an infant, my mother's challenges with formula feeding me, check out our video extras on the Birthright Podcast YouTube page. You'll also find extra footage of Dr. Cooper Owens and I talking about examples of joy in slave narratives in medical history and how she personally finds joy while studying the very sad and dark medical history of Black women. Ultimately, stories matter. And your birth story matters. Our mother's stories matters. My name is Kimberly Seals Allers, daughter of Alma, granddaughter of Mary Jane, great-granddaughter of Emily, and mother of Kayla. And it is my hope and my determination that through the work that I am doing, along with countless Black women in this space, to reverse our narratives and reclaim our birthright in childbirth and breastfeeding, that Kayla's story will be a very different one. Thank you for joining me on the Birthright Podcast. Birthright is hosted by me, Kimberly Seals Allers. Our executive producers are Nolika Radway and Kimberly Seals Allers. Randy Chapman produces the show with Nikki Valdez as assistant producer and help from Homero Radway. Sound design and engineering by Sam Baer with original music from Trell Robinson. Birthright is funded by the California Healthcare Foundation. If you like what you heard today, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It really helps people find the show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>